Good to see you. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, really excited that you're here. This is our fourth week of our study of the book of Titus. And uh, just a few more weeks left. We're, it's not a very long book, as you can see, um, but we're kind of working our way through it. And if you're new with us this morning, the context for this, uh, this letter that we're looking at is the Apostle Paul has written it to a guy that he mentored named Titus. Now, if you're not familiar with Paul, Paul originally was a very zealous Jewish guy that was so against Christianity that he was trying to snuff it out, round up Christians, kill them, imprison them, that sort of thing. Along the way, he met Jesus, and Jesus got involved in his life, and he uh, had a total 180, just completely changed. And instead of trying to destroy the church, he started uh, launching and planting new churches. Well, one of the churches he started was in the island of Crete. That's just a little bit south of Greece today. They're in the Mediterranean uh, Sea. And uh, he started a church there in Crete and then uh, handed it over, handed over the leadership to a guy that he had mentored and developed uh, named Titus. And so now he's writing this letter to Titus to really try to help Titus establish what will become a healthy church. And that, that word healthy shows up a lot. In the ESV here, it's translated as sound. Uh, we actually find it in verse one of chapter two today, just uh, we read just a minute ago. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. That's healthy doctrine. So this whole book is about how to live a healthy Christian life. Now, we've looked at this uh, just week after week because this is Paul's purpose for writing. In verse 1, uh, we get this formula. He said, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So what we've seen here is that faith plus knowledge of the truth plus godliness is health. That's how Paul's seeing it. That's how he's describing it. Now, in setting up the letter, he says it, it, this health is going to start with leadership. And so uh, the second week, we looked at the character of leadership in chapter one. Last week, we looked at the courage of leadership, how leaders need to step up and shepherds need to protect the sheep from wolves. When there's people teaching false things and leading in bad directions, uh, shepherds, godly leaders have to be courageous and step in, right? Sometimes a mom has to get in her car and run over the person that tried to break in her house, right? That was a story Josh uh, shared last week and uh, very funny and, and really very true. And so, so that's, what the, that's what leadership is about. Leaders going to kind of establish the healthy culture. In, in today's passage, though, the focus shifts away from what leaders are supposed to do to how everyday, ordinary Christians are supposed to live. And they're living, keep the context here in mind, they're living this baby church, new Christians trying to have a, a good gospel impact throughout the rest of this island of Crete. They're, they're the guinea pigs. They're the starting uh, group of this whole thing. And Paul wants them to be healthy. And so it raises this question for me. Think about this question. What if the growth and development of Christianity in our community, in this Williams Gateway Queen Creek, Gilbert, Southeast Valley area, what if the growth and development of Christianity depended on people watching our lives for a month? Would our lives communicate that our beliefs really are a big deal? that God really is real, that Jesus provides unbelievable grace and the Holy Spirit has come to give us new power to live differently? Or would our lives say that we're just kind of like everybody else? That's what's at stake in Crete. 
And that's honestly what's at stake in our communities. Now, God is sovereign over that. God uses all that. God uses even our failures. Even our failures give us a chance to actually tell people about how we're saved by grace, not by our works. But nonetheless, what Paul is going to shift to here today is he's going to say, you actually see it in in chapter 2, verse 1. He's going to shift to telling Titus that it's the lives of the people in Crete that are going to preach louder than anything. He says it this way, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Those are some kind of interesting words there. What's doctrine? Doctrine is teaching. Doctrine is the truth. Doctrine is theology. And it's interesting, Paul doesn't say, hey, Titus, teach sound theology. That's not what he says. Now, there's a lot of places in the Bible that say we should do that. We should teach good theology. Theology is just a word that means the truth about God. We should teach about that God eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We should teach about the virgin birth. And we should teach about that we can be made right with God, justification by faith, and all these technical terms. We should preach about the second coming of Christ and about how the Holy Spirit has indwelt and fills and powers. And, right, we can get lost in all of that theology. And it's very important But notice, that's not what Paul says. He doesn't say, hey, Titus, teach sound doctrine. He says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach the life that flows out of sound doctrine. That's what you need to do. And that's what we're going to look at here today. If people around our community were to look at our lives, if they were to move in with you for a month or two or move in for a year, would they be more convinced that the truth of the gospel is powerful? Or would they just be able to write it off? That's what's at stake here. In fact, you see that uh, as we uh, begin kind of answering a number of questions. This whole thing's about faithful living. What does faithful living uh, look like? Uh, what was faithful, healthy living as a Christian uh, look like? And we're going we're gonna to really answer a number of questions today. We're going to look at uh, why does faithful living matter? Why is it important? Uh, where is faithful living um, evaluated? Like what's the context in we can, which we can gauge? Is somebody being faithful or not? What does it actually look like to be faithful? And then what forms it? What, what makes it happen? So that's where we're going to head uh, first. Why does faithful living matter? Uh, before we dive into that, though, let's pray together. Um, Father in heaven, we invite your uh, spirit now to teach us and to lead us. Um, God, we invite you to use your word to cause us to be more faithful. We want to faithfully represent you. We want the people around us to be able to see our light shine before men and then give glory to God. That's what we want. We pray you use this text, use this time to do that in us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, in case you feel like, gosh, Luke, you are just really making too big a deal about this. How can that much be on the line? How is it that the faith of all these people in Crete could be on the line on the basis of what, you know, how the, this, this Cretan church lives? I mean, isn't that a little extreme? Uh, no, it's not. And so here's the first question. Why does faithful living matter? Why does it matter? And we get an answer to that in verse 5 and in verse 8 and in verse 10. Uh, before I look at those specific verses, let me just tell you, here's what's going on in this passage. Paul has set out, said, hey, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he's gonna say, here's what it looks like for older men, for older women, for younger women, for younger men, for Titus, for servants. 
Here's what it looks like for all these people. And laced throughout all of it is this assumption Paul has that people are watching and that the, the truth of the gospel is proclaimed or denied on the basis of what people see. So here's what's at stake. Verse five, you know, live in this certain way, younger women, that the word of God may not be reviled. If you don't live according to this, people will think the gospel's not true. Verse eight, uh, Titus, show yourself in this particular way so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing to s- evil to say about us. Hey, Titus, if your life doesn't match up, people are gonna question your beliefs. Verse 10, servants, hey, you're supposed to live this way so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That word adorn means beautify. Our conduct beautifies the doctrine that we believe. There's a commentary I have. It's a really cool commentary. It's on uh, every book of the Bible, just a one-volume thing, and it's the first ever in history commentary that's written by all African scholars and pastors and leaders. Uh, So very cool. I mean, so much of what you read is just from a Western European context, and so to read this is really cool. And their commentary on this passage points out that what happens is when the culture sees that we proclaim a certain truth but we live a different way, they don't question the way we live. They question what we believe, right? You see this in subsequent generations. When a, when a younger generation looks at its parents and says, they said this, but they did that, they don't question what they did. They say what they believe must not be true. That's exactly what Paul's saying. He's saying, Paul, he's saying Titus, folks are looking around. The development of the mission is at stake here. The the missional impact, that's what's at stake. That's what's on the line. Why does this matter? Because we're trying to make a a difference. We're trying to make a a missional impact. And so I just would ask us, do we see ourselves as missionaries in this world? Do we see our church as needing to have a missionary mindset? Do we see that we're the visiting team in our culture? There was a time perhaps in American history where it didn't feel like that. I'm not sure that was always true, but where it felt like we were the home team. We're not the home team. Our our ability to to be mindful of the world around us is really gonna shape the impact we have. And it starts with saying, you know what? I gotta be faithful. I'm gonna honor the Lord in what I do. All right, so that's why faithful living matters. Second question, where is faithful living evaluated? What's the context in which we would go, okay, where is this taking place? And the answer that that Paul basically gives here is how we live at home. What's going to show the world the beauty of the gospel? How we live at home. All of this passage is about the home life. It's about the household. It's about uh, the way that a family works. It's, a way, it's about how older men live and young, older women and younger women and younger men and so forth. It's all about that home. Why? Because we know, don't we, that who we really are is who we are at home. Right? That's the blessing and the curse of a long marriage. Those of you that have had a long marriage, the blessing is your spouse really knows who you are. The, the curse is they really know who you are, right? And, and, but they know who you are, right? That you we're seeing who we really are at home. Um, one of my good friends, her dad is uh, the pastor of, uh, that, that founded Redemption Gilbert, Tom Schrader. Tom will be here in a couple weeks preaching and uh, you'll, you'll be blessed when he's here. Um, his daughter, Haley, 
uh, and her husband Tyler are good friends of ours. And it's interesting because I've talked with Haley before. As I'm raising pastor's kids, I've asked her, What's it, what was it like to be a pastor's kid? And, and what kind of questions did you get? And stuff like that. And, and Haley would say that there's one question she got more than any other question, being the, the daughter of this big church pastor. What question do you think she got? What's he really like? What's he really like? Is he like that at home? Because he's this way on stage, but is he really like that at home? That was the number one question people asked. Why? Because they're trying to gauge, is this the real thing? I've been fooled before. I've been taken advantage of before. Is this the real thing? And she would say, he's the same person, unfortunately. (laughs) He's the same person uh, that you see in public. He's the same person at home. And uh, would that we would all strive for that, right? That we would be the same person at home, that we are at work, that we are at the game, that we are in the car, that we are on social media. It's too easy to fake it in these places. You can't fake it at home. And so Paul says the whole setting of this, the whole context in which we're going to evaluate faithful living is what's going on at home. Do your kids watch your life and want to follow Christ, right? If earlier you said, well, that's not fair. I, I, I think it's just, you know, I, I'm not advanced enough to be able to say, you know, hey, why don't you just watch my life and I'll show you that Christianity is true. If you're scared by that, if you go, I could never do that. I could never go to someone and say, watch my life and see that Christianity is true. If that scares you, you shouldn't be a parent. Because that is, whether you know it or not, what you're doing as a parent. You're saying to your kids, watch me. I'll show you that it's true. Some pressure there, isn't there? And God's grace is sufficient for us, but this is a serious calling. It matters a lot, and it's evaluated at home. Here's the third question. This is where we'll spend the bulk of our time really going through this passage, is what does faithful living look like? Okay, what does it look like? If we know it matters, we know it really is talking about what happens at home, what does it look like? How is it described? What words would you use to explain it? And uh, I've already told you, Paul's going through kind of the household. Uh, The household structure in in these days is very different than the household structure in our day. Uh, Both are cultural expressions, so it's not like one is right and one is wrong, but it's just helpful to see how different they are. So here's a, a graphic that kind of shows you the, the family hierarchy, if you will, of the folks in Crete and in the Roman Empire is uh, you had a kind of a hierarchy system. At the top of it was the father. Now, we might actually, in our kind of language, we would maybe think of that as a grandfather because you have adult kids living in this mix, right? So that the father's the patriarch, right? You have the father, you have supporting him and his leadership, the mother, or again, grandmother. Then you'd have adult kids, Right? These would be households that would often be multi-generational, and so you'd have adult kids, sometimes with their own kids, right? their own fathers and mothers in that mix. Then you would have slaves or servants. Uh, they're called bond servants in verse 9. Um, and these were like, um, th- this isn't quite like what we think of when we think of American and British slavery, which was kidnapping and treating people as subhuman. Oftentimes these people were in this position to pay off a debt that they owed, uh, it was much more like being a full-time live-in nanny or those sorts of situations. There were places where it was really bad. Let me, I don't want to whitewash that, but it wasn't quite as extreme as we would think. So much so that you actually see slaves had a higher position in a household than little kids did. They were often kind of, t- the slaves were sort of tutors and teachers to the small children, right? So that was the cultural expression of household in the Roman Empire. Ours is very different from that, isn't it? 
right? Ours, we basically just get rid of a couple layers, right? We don't have the slaves and servants. That's probably a good thing. Uh, the adult kids, are, I mean, however that works, right? What we just have is, is father, mother, and kids. That's basically for most of us the situation. And it's interesting because if you watch any TV show, what you'll see is that the order of importance is small kids, then mother, then father, right? Father on every TV show is just an idiot. He's almost unnecessary except to make fun of. So both of those, get this, both of those are cultural expressions. One's not right and one's not wrong necessarily. There's strengths and there's weaknesses to both. But it's helpful to understand this is the household Paul's writing to. So except for the little kids, he's going to address all four of those groups of people. And even though our households aren't exactly the same, a lot of the principles that he's hitting on really matter and are relevant uh, in our age as well. All right? So that's kind of a, a background to set up. What does faithful living look like? Well, first he talks to older men. And when we look at older men and older women, I'm just going to let you decide how old is old, okay? That's your call. I'm not deciding it. That's up to you. If you think you fit and he's talking to you, then he is, all right? So verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness says, listen, older men, you're the thermostat. You set the pace. You set the temperature. You set the agenda in the household. As you do that, be sober-minded. Think clearly. Be dignified. That word is like the idea of gravitas. You're winsome. You're warm. People want to be near you. They're drawn to you. You're self-controlled. And then he says sound. And again, that word sound means healthy. Healthy in faith. Meaning you're not afraid of everything. You're not looking at everything around and, and, and in fear. Instead, you have faith in God. You're sound. You're healthy in love. You're caring about other people. You're pouring yourself out sacrificially in love to people. And you're sound in steadfastness. That word means hope. You're hopeful. Now, this is interesting because those of you who are older, you know, the longer you live, the more pain you absorb in your life. Physical pain, emotional pain, relational pain, spiritual pain. And you absorb that pain. And you have two options. That pain can make you hardened and bitter or it can make you hopeful and tender in the promises of God. And what Paul here is saying is, don't let it harden and make you bitter. Instead, have gravitas, have dignity, be respectful, be an example of hope and of love and of faith. Right? I, I've been around some older guys who you think their mission in life is basically to do two things, gripe and buy gold. <laughs> right? and everything is wrong, and everything is broken, and everything is worse than it used to be, and everyone else is stupid, and everything's too loud, and everything, blah, 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 blah. And you know what? Who's listening to them? Nobody. <laughs> Nobody. No, because it's not winsome, and it's not warm, and it's not inspiring, and it's, right? And, and it's so sad to me, because there's a lot of good things that those men have to say. They have a lot of experience. They have a lot of wisdom. They have a lot to offer. But the way they carry themselves is in such a way that no one wants to hear it. Paul says, listen, Titus, challenge the older men to be examples that the younger men would want to follow. 
Going through this, I thought of Caleb. Caleb is a figure in the Old Testament, and if you aren't familiar with this story, he's a great example of an older guy who isn't checking out, and he's not, you know, mailing it in the last few years. He is going hard after God. He's an example to follow his whole life. If you're not familiar with Caleb, basically what happened is the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. Uh, Moses came in, uh, said to Pharaoh, let my people go. You had all the plagues, you had the Passover, you had all that stuff. And they're rescued out of slavery in Egypt and they're headed towards a promised land. And on their way there, Moses appoints 12 men and he says, hey, I want you to go as spies into the land that we're going to go into and I want you to check it out and give me a report. Well, they go there and the crops are beautiful. They've been told it's a land flowing with milk and honey. They are like, it is. It is amazing. It is spectacular. What an amazing place. But there's a problem. There are these people there who are huge and powerful and strong. They're called the Anakim. I don't know. Is that, a, that sounds like a Star Wars thing to me, but I don't know if that's a... But they, these guys are scary, they're battle-tested. Like, if we go into this land to have this beautiful land, we're gonna have to beat those guys. And 10 of the 12 spies tell Moses, we can't do it. We can't beat them. Two guys say, we can take them. Our God's bigger than them, Joshua and Caleb. Joshua becomes the successor to Moses. When Moses dies, Joshua leads the people in the promised land. And when he leads them there in Joshua 14, Caleb now, at 85 years old, having wandered in the desert while the whole first faithless generation who grumbled and complained and didn't have faith, they all die off. Caleb's left and he comes to Joshua and he says, Joshua, I've been waiting a long time for this. I want to get that piece of land and I specifically want to go after the Anakim. At 85, he says, give me the toughest job. Give me the biggest task. I'm still strong. I can still do it. That's what I want to be as an older man. Don't you older men want to be that? You don't want to mail it in collecting shells and wasting your time and living for yourself. Do something big. Do something important. Be a person who is hopeful, who, who draws younger people to you because they go, I want the vision of life you embody. That's the challenge of this. That's older men. Next, he talks about older women. He says, older women, again, you're going to have to define that for yourself. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Older women, similarly, he says, likewise, are to be reverent. This word reverent is, has at its root the idea of being holy. It's almost a priestly term, right? And, and in the Old Testament, the priest was the person who would represent the people to God and God to the people. The priest would serve as this kind of mediating function. And, and Paul here is saying, uh, encourage the older women to function like priests. They're holy. They're reverent. They're godly. Not slanderers. That word is uh, where we get the word diabolical. Not devil-tongued. That's what he's saying, literally. Right? And, and older women, you know that over time, you can, just as older men can, you can start slandering and you can start speaking against and you can start making people look bad and say, I wouldn't have done it that way. Slanderous. He says, not like that. Not slaves to too much wine. 
right? Not medicating yourself because of the pain, not living for yourself because finally you're free. No, not that. Instead, they're to teach what is good. So Paul says, listen, Titus, encourage the older women not to complain about what's wrong, but to teach what's right, to teach what's good, to play a mentoring role specifically to younger women. Now, here's what I want to tell you, older women. I've talked to a number of young and younger women and women with kids and all sorts of stuff in in the home that are small. I've talked, not the women aren't small, the kids are small. Um, I've talked to these younger women and they are so hungry for your investment in their life. Many of them don't have their mom in town, don't have a mother-in-law in town, don't have family in town, and they are on their own. And they are longing for your input. They're longing for your help. But here's the thing. They are terrified to ask. And there's just enough insecurity and there's just enough uncertainty that they don't ask. And you feel like, oh, I don't know if anyone wants to hear what I have to say. They do. They do. And if you could get in relationship with them, this is why we do women's discipleship. This is why we do redemption community small groups. This is why we try to create lots of environments that get you out of rows and into circles so that you could form meaningful relationships with younger women where it doesn't start with you lecturing them. It is like you're living with them. You're teaching them. Here's how to take care of a home. Here's how to love a husband. Here's how to cook food. Here's how to do these things. Here's how to be a godly woman. They want to hear that. You go, well, but they aren't asking. No, they're not. And you're older. Be a (laughs) grown-up. Move toward them. Get in relationship. And see what God does. There's a woman in our church right now who's coming over every couple weeks to teach my little girls how to knit. I love that. They're learning to knit, they're learning to crochet, they're doing cool stuff with that, but they're also learning from her presence. What a huge gift to our family. Love that. So older men, older women, and then young, younger women. And younger women, the point here, he really seems to think, is that the younger women, what they really need from these older women is a wake-up call. Here's what he says. The, the, the older women are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, etc. Where do you get the wake-up call? Well, that comes from this word train. It's the only word, it's the only time in the New Testament that this word is used, this word train. It means to bring someone to their senses, right? It's like smelling salts. Have you ever done smelling salts or used smelling salts? I did just the other day. I've got this friend who's a preacher. He, you, he breaks open a smelling salts thing before every sermon because <laughs> he's like, I want to think really clearly when I preach. And it's like, Wow, that's amazing. What sacrifice for your people. I wouldn't be willing to do that. But, but he gave me one of these and I was like, whoa, like, I mean, this is crazy. That's the word here. That's what that word train means. It's saying, hey, older women, there's times as you're in relationship with these younger women where you have a chance to go, hey, wake up, wake up. It's a wake up call. It's smelling salts. Hey, you need to fix something here. Let me help you. Let me come alongside you. Let me encourage you. That's the role. That's what younger women need. They need that sometimes. It's a wake-up call to say, hey, I've been there. I've done that. I see you going down this road. It's not a good road for you. Let me help. Okay, well, what? Once they're woken up, woken up to what? Well, it says, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. You know, why would they need to be 
trained to love their husbands and kids. Have you ever had a husband and kids? Right? Like, that's why. And especially in this culture where it's very much arranged marriages, this word love actually, there, there's a lot of different Greek words for love. This one has with it the idea of just affection, of liking. This isn't the main word that's like unconditional love. This is like teach the young women to like their husbands and children. I think that's harder sometimes than to have this, un, right? It's like, I'd die for this person. I just don't want to be around them. Right? And he's saying, older women, you know what that's like. You've been in those shoes. Right? Ladies, you love your kids. You die for your kids. But I just am so sick of them. Right? You need an older woman to come in your life and help you understand how to do that, how to like them. He says, you need that. You need uh, these older women to help teach you to be self-controlled. You'll notice this self-control theme runs through this whole thing. Self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. There's this idea that Paul is saying, hey, hey, younger women, you've got this role to play. These older women are going to help you do this, but this role is prioritizing your home. It's prioritizing your husband. It's prioritizing your kids. It's working hard, being pure, being respectable, embracing that role. Now, there's a couple phrases here that uh, sometimes people have a lot of questions about, so I want to just talk about each of them for just a moment. The first one is at the end of, uh, or I'm sorry, middle of verse 5 where it says submissive to their own husbands. Uh, that's a very unpopular idea in our culture that a wife would be submissive to her husband. The Bible teaches it all over the place when it talks about marriage. And the reason it can teach that is because the biblical view of, of marriage is that husband and wife are equal in the image of God and have different roles. A husband is to lead. How did Christ lead? He died, he sacrificed, he he gave his life for his bride, the church. That's how men are to lead. Women are to submit and respect to their husbands. They're to follow. So what you have is this mutual dying to self, this mutual giving up of my rights. That's the biblical approach to Christian marriage. And, and he's saying, wives or older women, you need to teach younger women to be able to do that, to follow and die to self in the relationship with their husband. Now notice it doesn't say teaching them to be submissive to all men. doesn't say that. doesn't say women are, you know, every woman has to submit to every man. No. This woman, when push comes to shove, is, needs to follow the leadership of her husband, but only her husband. So that's submissiveness. And then the other one that gets a lot of attention is, uh, that questions about is the, the idea of working at home. Verse five, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home. That word means busy at home or prioritizing the home, being a homemaker. Now, notice it doesn't say only working at home, but it says prioritizing that. Now, now here's what's important. Remember the context, right? We instantly come to it and we go, okay, we have stay-at-home moms and we have working moms. In this situation, Paul is not writing because the problem was there were so many women in Crete who were out working on the Cretan stock market all day long that they didn't have time to be with their families anymore, right? That's not the situation. The situation is these women are home, but they're lazy. And they're not really prioritizing the relationship with their husband and kids. They're not really working. They're home, but they're not working, right? That's the context. 
So then we have to try to go, okay, but in our context, what does that mean? What is, how does that apply? And so I've got two questions and then two encouragements. Uh, first question, this is for stay-at-home moms. Those of you that have the privilege to be able to stay home and, and raise kids. Are you really working at home? Or, like these women, are you distracted by other things? Now, you're not distracted with what they were distracted with. Right? They had, you know, grandma to take care of it and servants to take care of it, and so they could do, you know, whatever they were doing. In our case, it's, okay, moms are home, and they do a lot around the house, but it, it is, are their hearts and minds really distracted by Facebook? Really distracted by house hunters? Really distracted by Instagram? I sometimes watch, and, and it, if, if you hear this and go, he's, he's talking about me, but he's just afraid. No, I don't even know who I'm talking about. I sometimes see women post things on social media about how busy they are. And I think you're not that busy as much as you post on social media. <laughs> if you were really that busy, you'd get off of that and be busy. <laughs> so moms who so stay at home, are you really working at home? You go, you can't say that to me. You're a man, you're a pastor, you're right. So go talk to an older woman and ask her. <laughs> I'm just raising the question. I don't have the ability to answer it all, but I'm, you need to wrestle with it. That's, the, that's really who he's writing to. He's writing to you more than he's writing to the working mom. But it raises questions for working moms. So here's the, here's the question for working moms. Is your work outside the home too negatively impacting your priority inside the home. The Bible doesn't say you can't work. But if that work, as important as it may be, as much as you may need that income, as much as you may need that insurance, as much as you may feel called to that, if, if you're not able to really prioritize affection and care for your home, you've got to wrestle through that. Now, what do I do there? Right? Sometimes that wrestling is asking, why am I working? Am I working because I have to, because I need to? Am I working because I need some of these important things? Am I working? And there's lots of good reasons to be working. There's also lots of bad reasons to be working. Maybe it's because I, uh, you know, my parents only value me if I really have a career. Maybe it's because I need to earn a certain level of income because we're trying to live beyond our means. It could be good reasons, bad reasons. I just think you need to ask them. And then you need to go to older women in your life again and say, here's my situation. What do you think? Speak wisdom into this. Help me think it through. All right, so those are the two questions. I realize that's uncomfortable. So I'm going to follow with two encouragements. First encouragement to stay-at-home moms, your work at home really matters. And it may feel like it's a waste of time. It may feel like it's making no difference. It may feel like it is just robbing you of everything that used to be important to you. It may feel like I don't have any adult interaction. It's worth it. It's worth it. I have these times, right? My, my, my family, my older two kids are at school. Uh, my wife is home with Mary, our 20-month-old, and a uh, huge blessing that she can do that. And I'll ask her sometimes. I'll go, hey, how was your day? And she's like, oh, my gosh. I just feel like I didn't do anything today. I go, well, what do you mean? Talk me through it. And she's like, well, I, I did a lot, but I feel like, does it even matter? Like, 
Like I sat on the floor and I rolled a ball back and forth with Mary for 20 minutes. And then I said, all right, Mary, go get this book. And she went and got it and we read it. And then we read another book and we read books for 20 minutes. And then we turned on this music and she danced around and we sang songs. And I just feel like, oh my gosh, when am I gonna contribute to society? And I just tell her, honey, I can hardly think of anything that is making a bigger difference in society than that. Do you know how valuable it is for a kid to have that level of attention, to have that level of love, to have that level of focus? What a huge gift, what a huge privilege. Not everyone in the world can do that. What a huge opportunity. So stay-at-home moms, if you feel like it's a waste, I don't, I don't like it, I need to do something important, that's important. It's really important. Yeah, you can be excited for that. What you do matters a lot. All right, now here's the encouragement for working moms. For working moms, here's the thing that just I hope is a real encouragement to you. The model of biblical womanhood who is held up all over the place comes from Proverbs 31. Read Proverbs 31. She is a working mom. She is working at home. Right? The, the, the work outside the home hasn't trumped her priorities at home, but she's working at home and she is working outside the home and she is getting it done. She is kicking butt, taking names, buying a field, accomplishing all sorts of economic activity. She is a great model. Right? There's a reason we hold that woman up. And so be encouraged. Some of you are called to really important jobs. Others of you, you're in a situation where God's calling you to work because of the other circumstances in your life. Embrace that. Look at Proverbs 31. Let that woman be a model for you. All right. We good there? You go, I don't know. I don't like that. All right. This is why we have community. Because Paul's saying, go work this out in intergenerational relationship. All right, well, what's the rest of this faithful living look like? Uh, Verse six talks to younger men. Younger men, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, period. (laughs) Right? Like, hey, hey, younger man, stop it. Like, you're out of, whatever, no, 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 no. Self-control, Right? That's like, what else do you need to tell a younger man? Right? Younger men are just driven by their passions and their appetites and their lusts and their desires and their dreams. And all that's great. Be self controlled. Rein it in. Right? We looked a few months ago at the example of Samson in the book of Judges. Samson was the guy who just over and over, I see that woman, I want her. I see that honey, I want it. Right? I'm going to disregard my commitments. I'm going to disregard my roles. I'm going to do whatever feels good. It's the example of a sensual person. Paul says, teach the younger men, be self-controlled. That's the big, big thing. Then he talks to Titus, to a church leader. Verse 7, show yourself, this is singularly to Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. He says, listen, young leaders, some of you are young leaders here. You're young leaders in your company. You're young leaders in your church. You're young leaders in your uh, neighborhood. Model. Lead the way with integrity. Lead through modeling. Lead through sound speech, integrity, model of good works. That's how you're supposed to live faithfully. And then last would be bond servants. And a lot of correlation here to how we do our jobs. 
But he says to bond servants, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing. That means not just doing the bare minimum, but trying to actually please uh, the person they're working for. Not argumentative, not pilfering, that is stealing. So they're to be honest, not to steal things, not to steal uh, information, not to steal money, not to steal in all sorts of ways. But showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So workers, servants, be honorable, be honest. Now, you may look at that list and you may think, oh my goodness, I could never, I could never live up to that. Here's the good news. There is someone who did. And his name's Jesus. He is the one who was sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. Reverent. He's the true priest, right? Not a slanderer, not a slave to wine. Loved what is good, faithful to his bride. Self-controlled, a model of good works in his integrity, right? People watched him teach and they said, there's nobody, he speaks with such authority, nobody's like this. He was obedient to his master, obedient to his father, right? Jesus is the perfect example of faithful living. And so when you find yourself going, I am short, then I don't measure up, then you repent, And you turn to Christ and you trust in Christ and you say, Jesus, I'm gonna trust that your perfect ability to obey this passage counts for me and that you have then now filled me, Jesus, with your spirit and empowered me to start to live more like this. And you just keep going through that cycle every time you need to. And over time, what you find is that you're shaped more and more and more into the image of Christ. What's the overriding characteristic in this passage? It's self-control. What does faithful living look like? Self-control. Knowing who you are, staying consistent, living for the Lord, even at home. All right, here's the last question. Is how is faithful living formed? How is it formed? How do we become people who live like this? Now, it's very interesting because if you just watch Paul's assumption in this, what is his assumption? His assumption is that these people are in intergenerational relationships, right? That's the whole setting of this. It's the home, it's the household, which is in that day an intergenerational relational experience. That's how it's formed. It's formed by the older men being examples of gravitas and of love and of faith and of hope. It's formed by the older women training the younger women. That's how it happens. So the question becomes, in our day, where we don't have these intergenerational households, and we have a culture that just deifies youth and just doesn't give a rip about older people, right? It's our culture. Given that, where in our culture could we possibly find a place where intergenerational relationships and friendships could happen. Hmm. Can you think of anywhere where that could happen? Where? The church. Look around. This is where it happens. And not just here, right, because we're in rows, but it's in the circles that are formed out of these rows. It's in the relationships that happen out of these rows, right? That's how this can happen. 
if we will uh, do the hard work of getting near people that are different from us, right? You didn't have to do that work in these days. In Paul's day, it was just there. In our day, it's easy to flock together with people like you. If you're older, it's natural and you just wanna be with people who are older. If you're younger, you wanna be with people who are younger. The call of this passage is to intentionally put yourself in intergenerational community, people different from you. There's incredible benefit to this. When Molly and I were in college, we joined a small group of this church we were part of. We spent all our time everywhere else around college students, and we ended up getting in this group with families and with older people, and they had kids, and Molly said the reason we were there was probably just because they made really good food every week, and so we were like, yeah, we're there. But we had a head start in our marriage because we were part of that group. And this burdens on everybody, but I'm especially gonna lean into you older folks. You've done a lot of hard work. You've raised your kids. You've done your stuff. There's a part of you, I get it, that just wants to relax. That is the culture, not the gospel. The gospel is pick up your cross daily and follow him. Die to yourself. Die to your preferences. Lay your life down for others. So don't just seek a group where you can be around all the people you like and you're familiar with. Get with some people who are messy. Get with some people who have loud kids. Get with some people because they need your help. And younger people, humble yourself. Remove the cultural blinders of our age that says that old people are stupid and slow and unimportant. Get rid of that. And go to these people who are wise and experienced and ask them, what's it like to to get ready to have your kids move out of the house? How did you handle it when your daughters became teenagers? How did you handle it when a a job opportunity opened up and you went, man, this is really gonna change things if I take it, how do I do it, right? Go to those people, seek that wisdom. That's how you get formed into this image. What breaks my heart is that I can only do so much in a sermon, right? Paul can only do so much in a letter, but he's saying for this to really happen, it's got to be lived out in community. It's got to be formed and wrestled with and molded. It's the same thing here. For those of you who your only experience of our church is here sitting in rows, you will never be able to do this. You won't because you've got to get in relationships that mold you and shape you and push you and make you uncomfortable and say, this is how it's done. That's why we have our start here class. If you're going, what would be a step? Start here. It's a very obvious step. Start here. Right? We put it in blue in the program. Every week, every week it's there. Start here. Start here. Start here. Why? Because we want to get you in these kind of relationships. Why? Because we want to be faithful people. Why? Because we want our city to look at our lives and say, Jesus really is king. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how you teach and guide and instruct us. We love you, Lord. Mold us to be people who are committed to what you're committed to, who are resisting the pressures of our culture and who are doing it in a way that's winsome and full of faith and love and hope. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Luke.